If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at uh, verse 1 primarily today. I want to read the first four verses. Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4, reads this way. It says, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to You this morning, and Lord, we look to You now. We look to Your Word. And so, Father, I pray that You would please... In these few moments, would you open our eyes, pray Psalm 119, verse 18, would you open our eyes so that we can behold the wonderful things of your word. Lord, we confess to you that there are wonderful things here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and Father, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see it. Give us the eyes to see it, Father. And so, Lord, we ask that through the power of Your Spirit that You would work in our lives this morning for Your glory. That You would draw us close to Your Son. That You would conform us more into the image of Your Son. And that You would change our lives for Your great glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we would all agree this morning that we all face real dangers in this world. Because of sin and its effect on the creation, there are real dangers out there. There is the danger of famine, there's the danger of disease, there's the danger of murder, there's the danger of theft, and there's many more dangers that we could just list on and on and on. Most recently, we have seen on the news the danger of war. You think about on October, or October, on February 24th, Russia invaded Ukraine. And we've seen or at least heard of the devastation that this has caused for the Ukrainian people. But for the most part, things of this nature are far removed from us. We don't feel the danger of having air raid sirens going off, which then is followed by bombs being dropped on the buildings we live in. We don't feel the danger of fleeing for our lives to escape army tanks and soldiers who want to bring harm to our lives. No, it's, it's something that happens out there. It's something that happens far from us. It's, it's something that happens to someone else. It doesn't happen to us. But in this text this morning, the writer of Hebrews issues a warning. He issues a warning of a real and present danger of drifting away. It's not something far from us. It's not like the Ukrainian war. It's not like that. It's not over there. It's not 
someone else is experiencing that and we just have nothing to do with it. It doesn't impact our life. No, this is a real and present danger that we face. And it's drifting. It's not something far out there. It's not something that someone else is going through. It can happen to us if we fail to heed the warning. If we fail to heed the warning. It's a warning that's targeted at one of the main problems that needed to be addressed among these Jewish Christians who had received this letter. It's a warning that I need to hear. It's a warning that we all need to hear. So the question is, what is the warning? What is the warning? Well, it's the warning to hold on to the message of salvation in Christ. To treasure it. To pay much closer attention to the things that we've heard so that our faith would grow, that our lives would be marked by perseverance, that our lives would be marked by faithfulness to God. It's the call to pay attention, to hold on to the message of salvation. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were facing danger. They were facing the danger of returning to some former way of life going back to some form of Judaism, some form of the sacrificial system. And this le- the writer of this letter, the author of Hebrews, is, says in this letter that this is a word of exhortation that he's giving to them. In chapter 13, verse 22. And throughout the letter, the writer alternates between teaching them and warning them. This is just one of many warnings that's given throughout the letter of Hebrews. In fact to return to some form of Judaism or some form of the sacrificial system was to leave the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. And to leave that once and for all sacrifice would be returning to a state of hopelessness. That's what the author's doing in Hebrews. Exhorting them not to do that. To see that Christ is better. He's better than all things. Because the Father has accepted the sacrifice of His only Son. And so our hope is anchored only in that sacrifice. So the author of Hebrews begins in verse 1 with the word, therefore. Or maybe your translation, some translations render it, for this reason. So we have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Why is it there? Well, the author is pulling upon everything he has previously said in chapter 1. Things like this, verse 1, if you look back to chapter 1, just look with me back there. In chapter 1, the author pulls on this, that Jesus is God's final and ultimate word to mankind. In verse 1, he says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us. How has He done it? Through the Son. By the Son. And then he goes on to tell us in verses 2-4 through that Jesus Himself is God. Not only is He the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate and final revelation of God, but He is God Himself. In verses 2-4 through he says, he says that He has spoke to us through His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He did what? He created the world. 
Who created the world? God created the world. And so he's telling us, the author's telling us that Jesus himself is God. That's who this is. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by what? The Word of His power. By the Word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as as the name He has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. What a beautiful passage. That Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation to mankind. He is God. He is the creator, sustainer, and providential Lord of all things. And He is superior to the angels. Why? Because He created the angels. He created them. And so the author of Hebrews would say in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if Jesus is the final and ultimate revelation of mankind... He Himself is God. He is the Creator, Sustainer, Providential Lord of all things. He is superior to the angels. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. To what we've heard about Him, what we've read about Him, what we've come to know about Him, because of who He is. We must pay attention. In my study of this passage, I had to ask the question. I'm sure some of you, if you've read through Hebrews very much, you would have to ask the question, why does the writer of Hebrews issue warnings? Why does he issue warnings? In fact, in this one he says, therefore we, we must pay much closer attention, including himself in this warning. We must all do this. Why the warnings? If Our salvation for those who are truly regenerate, those who have truly been saved, those who are really born again, if their salvation is secured in Christ, why would we be warned? Do you not think that? (laughs) Or am I the only one? I could just be the only one thinking this thing as I'm reading through the text. I mean, you think about words that Paul penned in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish the work. It's sure. You think about John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I'm not going to cast out. It's sure. For those who the Father has given to the Son, they won't be lost. You should say amen. (laughs) We won't be lost. If we've been given to the Son from the Father, we will never be cast out. He will finish His work. It's what Paul said in Romans 8, 37-39. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation, what? Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can do that. So why the warning? Why does the writer of Hebrews give warning? If you're taking notes, I want to give you just a couple of reasons why I think the writer of Hebrews gives these warnings. First of all, it's a means God uses in the lives of his people to keep us persevering to the end. It's a means that God uses in the lives of his people to keep them persevering to the end. In other words, when a true believer hears 
or reads these words and they are drifting, it will jolt them out of their drifting and back in line with the gospel. Does that make sense to you this morning? When they read these words, when they hear these words, and they are in fact drifting away, God will use it through the power of the Spirit to jolt us back in line with the gospel. <clears throat> dear friend of mine, dear friend and dear brother, many years ago, we lived life together. We fished together. We hunted together. We camped together. Families were always together. We talked to, to each other every single day. Every morning, we talked. On my way to, to class, Southern Seminary, and his, his way to, to work. And he, en he ended up enduring several hardships in life. His dad died in a tragic car accident suddenly. And at the funeral of his father, his wife confessed that she was leaving him for another man and wanted to bring that man to the funeral of his father. So you can imagine how that set. And I started watching slowly this dear friend, this dear brother, start moving away, start drifting. We talked less. We saw each other less. He was gathering less with the people of God. And after several weeks, I tried calling him. He wouldn't answer his phone. So I started going to his house, trying to, to catch him. He was home. He just wouldn't answer the door. Probably six to eight months went by. And finally I call him. He answers the phone. He's weeping. I'll never forget it. He's weeping. And he said, Michael, he said, I'm reading the book of Hebrews. And he said, man, I'm scared to death. He said, I'm hearing these warnings. I'm reading what it says. And I'm scared to death. You know what I said? I said, brother, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad this is scaring you. I'm glad it's, 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 it's bringing you back in line with the gospel. That's what I told him. I said, it's bringing you back unto the Lord. Bringing you back to Him from your drifting. I'm glad it's resonating with you. I'm glad it's setting in with you. Because if it's not, we've got bigger problems. Don't we? If these warnings don't mean anything to you, we've got major problems. Major problems. And that dear brother came back in line with the gospel through reading the warnings. God, through the power of His Spirit, did that work in His life. And He does that work in our lives. The second reason I think the, issue, the warnings are issued, it also serves as a reminder that if someone does not, does that, that if someone does indeed fall away from God, drift away, this only demonstrates that they were not believers to begin with. If they ultimately drift away, they ultimately slip away, they fall away, it only demonstrates that they were not believers. I want to be clear this morning that if you do indeed fall away from the living God, you only prove to be lost. You prove to be lost. You... Do you only profess something? You did not possess it. Does that make sense? 
And so when you hear warnings like this, it does nothing for you. You're drifting, professing. You don't possess anything, so you will ultimately fall away. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? They would have continued with us. If they really were, they would have remained. So in other words, and I just want to be clear this morning, you don't lose your salvation. You never had it to begin with. You neglected this. You neglected this. So the question for us this morning is, what is drifting? Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. We must pay closer attention to this truth. We must pay closer attention to what? We must pay closer attention to to the gospel. We must pay closer attention to the gospel. The gospel must be taken seriously. Tension must be given to it. The stress here is on the importance of paying attention to the gospel message. What has been heard, that which we've heard from Christ, that which we've heard from the apostles, we must pay close attention to it. It's stressed because of the danger of the congregation neglecting it or drifting away from it. There's always the danger of drifting away from the Gospel. The Gospel is always under attack. Always. Think about it this morning. You and I are used to hearing the Gospel message. And we tend from time to time to slip into a mode where amazing grace is no longer amazing to us. Has that ever happened to you? Where amazing grace is no longer amazing? In fact, it could become boring. It could become routine to us. And the danger is that, and there's a danger for everyone, especially those who grow up in churches where the gospel is preached regularly, to become complacent about the gospel message. It's easy to become indifferent or apathetic towards it. So the writer here in chapter 2 verse 1 issues the warning about drifting, but the question is, what does the word drift mean? Well, George Guthrie in his commentary on the book of Hebrews comments about the word drift. He says, the image of drifting is an especially potent one. The word used here could signify objects that slip away, such as a ring that slips off the finger, or objects that go in the wrong direction, such as a piece of food that goes into the windpipe. Perhaps the image closer to the author's attention, intention in this passage is that of a ship drifting, missing a harbor. It's intended to enter because of strong currents or winds. The author does not define the currents which the audience struggles but it is clear they are in danger of moving from spiritual vantage point where the gospel is the focus. So the writer was exhorting them to pay attention to what God had said, to not drift from the gospel, to hold on to the gospel. For the Christian and for the church, drifting is a serious problem and poses a serious and grave danger. These Jewish Christians were in real danger, and they needed correction. They needed correction. They needed a warning. They needed to be brought back in. So the question is, how does, how does drifting take place? How does it happen? 
Well, I want to say this to you this morning. I don't think it's premeditated. I don't think it's premeditated. In other words, I don't believe these Jewish Christians just woke up one morning and decided that they were just going to go back to Judaism or to some form of the sacrificial system and to leave the once and for all sacrifice that Christ had offered. I don't think it was just that way. I, nor do I think we just wake up one morning and decide to blow up the Christian faith by denying Christ and leaving His church. I don't think it happens that way. When you think about what is the most common way to ruin things? What's the most common way to ruin things? You think about with your car, what's the most common way to ruin it? Well, you could do something very instantaneously, couldn't you? You could drive out of this parking lot today and just take it right off into a pole or whatever you want to do with your car, destroy it. Blow it up, right? Push the gas pedal down real hard and just run it hard as you can, right? And blow the engine up. I mean, those are some instant ways you can do that. But what usually happens? What's the most common way? Check engine light comes on. What do we do? Ah, just keep driving. We had a family member years ago that I bought a truck off of. It's Jamie's grandfather. He's dead now with the Lord. But he was notorious for selling vehicles with a check engine light on, and he would put electrical tape over it so you wouldn't see it. And, and so in, you know, about two weeks into driving my pickup truck that I bought him, I loved that pickup truck. It was one of my favorite trucks I've ever had. I'm driving down the road at night, the lights are on, and, and guess what I start seeing? I start seeing this yellow glow coming out of, the, out of the dash, and I was like, where is that coming from? And I put my finger down there, and there's tape. There was tape over the check. I've been driving this truck for weeks and the check engine light's on. I called him and he said, oh, no, it's just this. Don't worry about it. No big deal. Well, we just ignore. We just ignore the warning signs, don't we? We don't clean things. We don't maintain things. We just let things go. We don't do anything. We neglect. That's the most common way, isn't it? In our homes, if the roof starts leaking, water's coming into our house, and we just keep living there, and we just ignore that leak, what's going to happen over time? We're going to have major problems going on, aren't we? I'm sure many of you have probably been in different communities and cities where you go into parts of the community, parts of the city, and you get into it, and you see these buildings that are falling apart, paint's coming off, roofs are caving in, gates are falling down, Weeds are everywhere. Grass is unbelievably tall. I mean, you get the image, don't you? People are living there. Well, what's happened? They're just ignoring it. They're just neglecting it. They're not maintaining anything. You see, the reality is, you know, we don't have to clean things up or shore anything up, and it will begin to fall apart. You don't have to do anything purposely. You just have to do nothing. You just have to do nothing. It's a lot like what Proverbs 6.10 says. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and destruction is going to come upon you. A little sleep, a little slumber, folding of the hands. Do nothing. Do nothing. And it will come on you. I want to say to you this morning, if you neglect the basic means of grace that God has given, prayer, study of His Word, gathering together as people, not allowing other believers into your life, you know what's going to happen? You're going to drift. Just do nothing. Just neglect. And you will begin drifting away. See, drifting happens slowly and gradually. 
And oftentimes in subtle ways that may not even be noticed. I mean, these Christians could have been way off course and may not have realized the danger they were really in. That's why the warning is issued to bring us back in line with the gospel. So how do we recognize drifting in our lives? How do we recognize it? I think drifting can happen to us individually. I think it can happen to us in our churches. I think it can happen in college, Christian colleges, Christian universities. It happens. Drifting happens. A biblical example of a church that drifted is what you heard read earlier in Revelation chapter uh, 2. But before that, Paul wrote to them in the book of Ephesians. And it's interesting what Paul said to them when he wrote to them. He called them saints who are in Ephesus. And guess what they're doing? Guess what these saints are doing in Ephesus? They're being faithful to God. He said, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. But then you go to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. I want to tell you this, a caveat, some 20, 30 years have passed. And what is said to the church in Ephesus by John? John writes this in chapter 2, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So the question is, what happened to this church? What happened from the time when Paul wrote to them when he wrote his letter and called them faithful in Christ to the time when John wrote to them. And John is saying to them, you've left your first love. Well, the answer to that is simply this. They drifted away. They drifted. Yeah, they had everything right with the false teachers. But they themselves lost their love for God. And they were drifting from Him. A church in Ephesus. Another example I can give to you this morning is found in the life of Demas. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, it's interesting. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. This is Paul's conclusion to his letter to the the church at Colossae. And, And we see here in this greeting that all the people Paul mentions that are greeting the church in Colossae. And Demas is one of them, sending a greeting to the church in Colossae. He's listed as one of the believers who's sending his greeting to the church. And then we go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, and Paul writes this. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So what do we learn about Demas from this passage? Here we find that He abandoned Paul because of his love for this world. So the question is, what happened to Demas between Paul's writing to the church at Colossae and then when he wrote to Timothy? And mind you, there's only four to five, six years have passed. The answer is clear. He drifted away. He drifted. And I think it should drive home some questions for us to think through and ask ourselves, do we notice any of Demas in our own lives? Do we notice Demas in our own life? Is is your love so deep for this world that you've lost your hunger for God and His Word? It's questions we must ask. 
Is there joy in your worship or is your joy lacking in worship? Have you lost the sensitivity to sin in your life? Are you growing in your faith and becoming more like Christ? Are you praying? Are you seeking the Lord's face? Are you remaining in His Word? These are things we must ask ourselves when we look at passages like this. Because see, if we're honest, we all feel the tendency. We all feel the tendency to drift. I want you to hear this this morning. We all feel the tendency to coast in the Christian life. Do you feel it? If you're a believer here this morning, surely to goodness you would acknowledge that's a temptation. It's a temptation to just go along, just to coast, just to move through. It's as the great hymn writer once said, we sang it this morning, our hearts are prone to wander from the God we love. That's why we have warnings like this, to jolt us out of our drifting and back in line with pursuing God through His Word and prayer. You see, warnings grab our attention and cause us to pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And if they don't do these things, then there's much more concern about our spiritual state. You hear me this morning? If they don't do that, there's a greater concern. There's a greater concern that you are neglecting salvation. And the writer says that the message that the angels, what they brought, what they presented, those who rejected it, what happened to them? Every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, a just judgment. And the writer is comparing the angels with Christ. And Christ is superior to the angels. And the message that He has brought if we are to neglect it, how much more will we receive a just retribution? You hear me this morning? So we need this warning individually. We need this warning as a church because the danger of drifting is always lurking. So the question, final question is this, how can we guard our lives against drifting? How do we guard our church from drifting? How do we do this? I want to say this to you this morning. We use the gracious means that God has provided. We use the gracious means that God has provided, both individually and corporately. We begin with just thinking about how do we guard our lives? How do we guard the church? Number one, here's the number one reason how we do it. We need to hold to the gospel and drink deeply from it. We need to hold to the gospel and drink deeply from it. That's what he's telling him. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. What did they hear? They heard the gospel. And so we need to hear it. We need to cling to it. We need to respond to it. We need to live it, meditate on it, and see all the beauty of it and preach it to ourselves each and every day of our lives. Drink from it. You see, there's such a deception in the church today. So many people say the gospel is just something we hear, we respond to, and then we just go do what we want to do. That is not the gospel. That's not it. We should hear it. We should respond to it. But we must use the gospel, think on the gospel, live the gospel each and every day of our lives. Every day. That's primary. 
If we're going to guard ourselves from drifting, if we're going to guard the church from drifting, we can't lose the gospel. We can't lose it. And second, we must fix our eyes on Christ. We must fix our eyes on Christ. And all these points are coming from Hebrews. He gives them the answers on how to guard against drifting. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. In other words, what he's saying to them, fix your eyes on Jesus. Give your attention to Jesus. Think about His character. Think about His work. Think about His sacrifice. Think about this. He is better than anything else. And that's what He presents in the whole book of Hebrews. His sacrifice is better. His covenant is better. His priesthood is better. Everything's better. Everything. Nothing compares to Christ. And so I would say to you this morning, fix your eyes on Him. Don't turn away. You see, it's when we fix our eyes on Him and we see His beauty, His majesty, everything else fades away. Everything else becomes less appealing. You ever notice that? When you're truly fixing your eyes on Him? thinking about Him, loving Him, things are less appealing. The things of this world fade away in comparison to our Savior. Third, we need regular, intentional fellowship in Christian community. We need regular, intentional fellowship in Christian community. This is a means of God's grace. In chapter 3, verse 12 through 13, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every once in a while. Or just when you feel like it. What does it say? Please tell me. What does it say? You might want to hurry. What does it say? Every day. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) Every day. As long as it's called today, as long as there's something called today, guess what we're to do? We're to be in each other's lives. It's a means of grace that God has given the body of Christ. You see, we've been saved individually, but we've been brought into community. We've been brought into community. We're, and I think this is, this is done twofold. This regular intentional fellowship. It's done twofold. First of all, it's when we gather together for corporate worship each and every week. Chapter 10, verse 24 through 25. It's not forsaking the assembly together. We come together to spur one another on into love and to good works, to encourage one another. We don't forsake it. As the writer of Hebrews said, some were doing. And second of that, the sub-point of this, is we live in gospel-centered community in everyday life. In other words, we do life together. We do life together. We, we do the one-anothering that's outlined in the New Testament. We love one another. We encourage one another. We rejoice with one another. We weep with one another. We confess sin to one another. We do this together. One of my favorite books is the Pilgrim's Progress. If you know me at all, you know I 
absolutely love that book. And it's an allegory of the Christian life that John Bunyan wrote. And John Bunyan, in my opinion, captured the Christian life just wonderfully in that book. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. But in Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, I find it interesting that Christian, who is the main character of that story, is never alone. He's never alone. There are characters that come alongside of him throughout the story. There's characters like hopeful and faithful and helpful that are interjected into the story that are walking with Christian through the experiences of life, through the hardship of life, through the dangers of life. I think Bunyan was communicating that the Christian life was not meant to be traveled alone. And that whole idea that he had in Pilgrim's Progress is tethered and tied to Scripture. We're to live life together in community. We're to live our lives together, not apart. Not apart. I just want to encourage you this morning, because there are many in our church body that do this, that live life together, that come alongside each other, who are like helpful and hopeful and faithful. And they travel together, living life. The ups and downs, the hard times, the good times. Living life. You know who you are. Many of you, you know, you think about, I was telling Jamie as I was preparing for this sermon, I was telling her, I said, you know, I just think so many people think pastors are superheroes of some kind that they just don't need anyone else. They can do it all on their own. They're just, you know, God's just done that kind of work in them. They don't need anyone else. That's not true. That's just not true. I need you as much as you need me. I do. And I'm thankful to God for how God has used you, many of you, in my life. For example, even in this hard season that we just traveled through with our daughter, just her graduation and everything coming to completion. Now moving on to a next phase. I needed many of you. I called on many of you and I asked one dear brother, how do I do this? How can I make it through this? So I was struggling. Big time. Battling depression. Battling discouragement. Severe discouragement. Yeah. I was preaching, teaching. You didn't know it, did you? We can hide it really well. I was called dear brother. I won't tell you who it was. Kevin Scribner here on the front row. I called him, and I said, brother, I need some advice. Because Kevin's not only like a wonderful, dear friend of mine, but he is like a father to me. And I said, I just need some help. I need you to be thinking through how you can advise me on this. And he never let it go. When are we getting together? When are we getting together? And we got together, and I was so thankful for the advice he gave me for how he pointed me to what I needed to be pointed to that I did not want to acknowledge. And it was this. I need to enjoy God in this season of Chloe's life. I need to enjoy God. I need to be thankful to God. I need to enjoy Him through this. And then we go to some training and the guy says the same thing. He stands up. Did you hear what he said? You know, God's telling you this. I know, it's hard though. It's hard to enjoy God. It's hard to enjoy Him in these hard times of life. It's hard, but it's true. 
It's true. And so I just want to encourage you and infirm you in your small groups. Go to deeper relationships with one another. Walk together. Encourage one another. Call each other. Text each other. Pray for one another. And when you're together, let your conversation be spiritual. Help each other along the way. All right. We've got two more points and then we're done. Fourth, we need to anxiously and expectantly wait the return of our Lord. In chapter 9, verse 28, the writer of Hebrews says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Eagerly waiting for Him. And so, this morning, I just want to simply point you to Christ. Think about His return. And then fifth, we need to remember that a better city awaits us. A better city awaits us. In 13 verse 14, he says, For here, listen to this, for here we have no lasting city. We feel that every day, don't we? It's not lasting. But we seek, we, people of God, seek the city that is to come. That's our home. We're aliens here. We're not citizens here. We're looking for that better city, that city of Christ. So set your minds on things above. All that to say this, that the cure to drifting is loving and cherishing Christ above all things. We look to Christ in faith, and that is the cure to drifting. We have a great Savior, a great salvation. Let us not neglect those things. But let us remember how amazing they are so that we don't drift away, so that we will be instead be filled with awe and wonder and praise, so that we will be moved to persevere in the Christian life and to live lives which glorify God, live lives which are full of joy and delight in this great Savior. Live your life for Him. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and thank You for Your Word.